Well, it seems like every time you turn around, um, a news source or an online source is printing a story ranking the cities of America. There are lists ranking the happiest city, the angriest city, cities that are the most expensive to live in, the most reasonable to live in, those that are the fittest or the fattest, uh, cities with the most restaurants per capita. It may not surprise you that Wilmore did not make that last list. In fact, it didn't make any of those lists in the top 10. I don't know where we ranked, but there is one list, if it were ever published, that I think will top the charts in. Uh, the city with the most biblical names. If you were to walk around the streets of Wilmore at dusk and listen to parents call their children in from playing, it sounds almost like a biblical roll call. Uh, just like any town, we have our Matthews and Rebecca's, we have our Jacob's and our Nathan's, but I would guess that in most cities in America, there aren't nearly so many Phoebes, Esthers, Ezekiels, and Elijahs. I'll challenge you to find another city with as many Boazes, Zebedees, even Obadiahs toddling around. This happens in Wilmore. I once had a friend who moved here believing she had given her little boy Josiah a pretty unique name. It was unique where she was from, but when she moved here, she discovered that he was starting kindergarten with five other Josiahs that year. Um, then there's a whole group of biblical characters whose names we really never use. Not just because of questionable character, I'm looking at you, Jezebel and Judas. Uh, not just because of insanely difficult pronunciation, I don't, even in Wilmore, Mephibosheth, Zerubbabel, you might be choosing these if you want unique names. But the, the particular list of biblical figures I'm talking about are ones that we never name anyone after because we don't know their names. Um, they were important enough for their story to make the cut and make it into the Bible, but no one ever thought to write their name down. The blind beggar, the woman at the well, the rich young ruler, the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, the boy with five loaves and two fish, Potiphar's wife, Lot's wife, Noah's wife, Job's wife. And, and it's bad enough for your story to be told without your name, but how about you get nicknamed forever by your sin? The woman caught in adultery. How would you like to be reduced for all of history and read about over and over again to be named by your greatest mistake? Now, to be fair, it's not really surprising that no one asked this woman's name because the men who dragged her into the temple that day didn't care much about her identity. They didn't even really care about her fate at all. They were more concerned with catching Jesus that day. What shall we do with this woman, Jesus? That's what they said. But they were really more concerned with what they wanted to do with Jesus. Here's Jesus' dilemma. If he agrees with them and with the law of Moses and says they can go ahead and stone her, he's taking power away from the law of Rome, and the Romans will have his head. 
If he goes against the law of Moses and says she should go free, he's defying the Jews, and he's likely to lose the respect of the crowds that have been following him all along. And so they've got him cornered right where they want him. Rock, hard place, Jesus. What's a Messiah to do? Should he decide this woman's fate based on mercy or justice? Should he operate out of holiness or love? Jesus' choice is not to choose. He is not an either-or kind of savior. God is a God of the and. And Jesus' first task is to take care of the angry mob. He diffuses the conflict by reminding the accusers of their own sinful hearts. Whoever's without sin, he says, let them cast the first stone. His first act is to stop humanity from hurting humanity. Once they've left, he turns his attention to the woman. Is no one left to condemn you? He asks her. It's like he wants her to, to look up for a minute and notice and acknowledge that the threat is gone and that she is safe with him. She knows what the men in the mob thought of her, but what does Jesus think of her? What will he say? How does he feel about her? Neither do I condemn you, he says. Oh, and one more thing. Go and sin no more. Those two statements sum up the nature of how the Gospel of John says that Jesus walked among us as one filled with grace and truth. Not, not with grace or truth, but with grace and truth. And the world seems to have come under the misguided impression that we must choose one of those statements. There's one way of being Christian that walks around proclaiming, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Come on in. The church is welcoming. Come on in. God's love is free. This is an accurate depiction of God's open and waiting arms and his grace that is free for all. But without the and, it's not much good. On the other hand, if we choose the second statement by itself, go and sin no more, or as the NIV says, go and leave your life of sin, if we choose to proclaim God's call to holiness, to turn from sin without his love and grace, we become just like the caricatures of harsh judgment and hypocrisy that this current cultural climate would like to make us out to be. Honestly, go and sin no more is an inconvenience to all of us, really. I mean, don't some of you wish Jesus had just left that off sometimes? I mean, after reassuring that he didn't condemn her, Jesus could have said a lot of things. Go and be yourself. You're okay just the way you are. Go and enjoy yourself. You deserve a little fun after what you've been through. Go. Continue in your lifestyle choice. You can't help who you love. But he didn't. He didn't say any of those things. Go and sin no more. Turns out that of all of the things that Jesus could have said, this was the most loving, the most compassionate thing he could have said. Our own Ken Collins says that John Wesley's understanding of God can be summed up in two words, holy love, and that those two words cannot be divided from each other. Holiness, apart from love, can 
lead, he says, to a dour religion in which separation would be manifested in legalism and prohibitions. But love, love apart from holiness would be, and I quote, soft, naively wishful, and likely self-indulgent. Holiness and love must be held in an artful balance. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Jesus looks at your life with one or the other. He looks at you with both. That artful balance looks like a woman freed both from her accusers who dragged her into the temple court and freed from a behavior that would drag her to self-destruction again and again. You can't have holiness or love. It's holiness and love, mercy and justice, grace and truth and is the most inclusive word that there is. And it's the and that makes the gospel powerful. Once Jesus got through with these two statements, joined by that one powerful conjunction, this woman was no longer trapped. She was empowered. She was given a choice by Jesus, and she could name her own future. As is so artfully done in a lot of these gospel stories, we don't get to hear the end of the story. We don't know what she chose, but I'm hoping she was transformed by the powerful and of Jesus. I'm hopeful that she was no longer named by her sin. I'm hopeful that maybe she was known by her friends as that woman who was changed by God's holy love, that she came to the later years of her life physically and spiritually safe and sound. That phrase, safe and sound, we throw that around like so many phrases, without really knowing the history behind it, where it came from. Safe and sound is actually a nautical term. It was used to refer to ships, especially ones that had been damaged out at sea, either in the battle or in the wear and tear of the ocean. They would return safe and home to their dock, rescued from the threat of battle or the wear of the elements. But unless they were repaired, it didn't matter that they were home. They risked sinking right there in their own harbor. Safe meant they were home, but sound meant that the master shipbuilder would get to work on them, going about the process of restoration, plugging holes, mending leaks, finding any danger of taking on water and stopping it, stopping it before that ship went down as a result. Safe meant to be back home in the dock, but sound Sound meant that this ship could be repaired from battle scars and sent out on a course of safety again. The and followers of Jesus understand that go and sin no more means that Jesus not only saves, guiding us home, but that we are in this lifelong process of repair called sanctification. Being made safe and sound by the one who saves and rebuilds even the vessels that the rest of the world has given up on. It seems strange to me to know the intimate details of this woman's life without ever knowing her name. No little Wilmore child will ever be named after her, not intentionally, not knowingly. And I wonder sometimes if there's a hidden purpose in not giving names to some of these characters in scripture. I wonder if their names aren't written into their stories so that we can see our names there, so that we can see our stories in their stories. 
Who is this woman? She is us. We are her. We may never have been caught in the act of adultery, but we've all been caught up in something. Something that seemed to start out as something that we could control, but eventually it began to control us until we were sinking deep in it. We, too, needed rescue and repair. We needed holiness and love. We needed mercy and justice, grace and truth, and we have received them from the God of the ant, the only one who can bring us home safe and sound. Amen.